Welcome to The Disaster Project, a podcast about everything disaster. I'm your host, Dr. Larissa Unruh. I'm extremely excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Laura Tilly. She's intimidatingly accomplished, but also incredibly funny, down-to-earth, and an overall badass. Did I mention that she recently separated from the Army as a lieutenant colonel, where she served as a battalion surgeon in Afghanistan during Operation Enduring Freedom? And she also was recognized by the U.S. Army Surgeon General as the most outstanding physician amongst her peer group. So overall, she's someone I want to be when and if I grow up. Currently, she's an associate professor in emergency medicine at George Washington University School of Medicine. She is also an adjunct associate professor at Uniform Services University. Today, Dr. Tilly will talk to us about a topic that she lived, disaster planning in austere environments. Welcome, Dr. Tilly. Great to have you on. I'm really interested to know how you got to where you are right now. Why did you decide to go into medicine? Why did you join the Army? And then from there, how did you get into disaster? First of all, Larissa, thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm really excited to be here today. Rewind all the way back to 17 years old when I got into Wake Forest for college. And my dad said, how are you going to pay for Wake Forest? I said, I'm joining the Army. And I, I don't really know exactly what I was thinking at that time. But the background is my my dad served in the Army National Guard. And so I'd grown up with the military familiarity around. And I had a very strong desire to become a physician, even from when I was a high schooler and truly felt I was blessed with a skill. And my way to give back was to be able to join the military and take care of people defending our country. And I, I really did feel and still do feel that if I can get someone back to their families that is willing to die for this country, that is why I'm on this planet. And so that was really my driving force throughout my military career. So I did ROTC in college at Wake Forest University and then received a military medical scholarship, the Health Profession Scholarship, HPSP program through the Army to go to George Washington for medical school and then went active duty when I finished medical school and my residency with the Army and served for 13 years. I got into the disaster space with first just being present in those situations. I think the military kind of puts you in situations where you very quickly start thinking about your contingency planning and emergency medicine does it as well. And you combine EM and the army and out comes a disaster fellowship, I feel like. And so very shortly after I finished my emergency medicine residency, I deployed to a very remote area of Afghanistan and very quickly got into this idea of what am I going to do when something goes wrong? How are we going to respond to this? And then also, how do we respond to this in a resource personnel poor environment? And so just started learning from there and then had the opportunity later in my career to go teach at the Military Medical School Uniform Services University, where I did a lot of work in medical education and training and educating our medical students who are going to be future military medical officers how are they going to respond to disasters? And so a lot of it started with just my experience. And I joked that my courses and my courses to date still are things I wish I would have known before I ended up here. And so a lot of it is anecdotal and just kind of building it over the past decade. So you mentioned austere environments. What is the definition of an austere environment? Is it more a lack of people there or a lack of resources or is it kind of both? 
for me, I look at an austere environment as a place where you are lacking either resources or people. And that can be a fluid definition, similar to how a mass count definition is going to be fluid. So for me, an austere environment is a lack of people, a lack of resources. It may also be a lack of evacuation capabilities. So then austere medicine is just practicing medicine in those environments where you don't have a lot of resources, correct? Correct. Okay. You're in the military. I know this. What is the military's role in the disaster field and then also with austere medicine? Yeah. So in terms of the military's role in the disaster field, we have an internal role within the Department of Defense and also externally, whether that's a domestic or international emergency. Internally, the Department of Defense as a whole is also working with disaster planning. You know, one example being if we ever go to war with one of our peer adversaries, such as China or Russia, and how are we going to handle a large influx of casualties for a large scale combat operation? So the disaster field is very diverse within DOD. And there also is overlap as well with civilian medicine and the Department of Defense and disasters. And so domestically, the military is also assisted with disaster response that's outlined in the National Response Framework. And then utilizing either FEMA or DHS will coordinate that response and actually file a request for assistance to the Department of Defense. And then the DOD has this entire framework called DISCA, which is Defense Support of Civil Authorities, which will outline how the Department of Defense actually supports those civilian emergencies and disasters. So when you're planning to go into some place that has very little resources, how do you A, get there? And then once you're there, how do you turn it into a functioning space if you need to be there for a while? So how do you get into a very austere environment? The bonus of being in the military is they are very good at getting into austere locations and will figure out a way to get you there. For me, it involved a airplane, a smaller airplane and a helicopter that got me to my location. And then in terms of turning it into a functioning space, no matter where you're going, if you know you're going to an austere location, doing your homework before you get there, where am I going? What are the resources that I'm going to have? internally and externally to support me there? Are there specific types of injuries or illnesses that I can anticipate? And then thinking about your supplies, thinking about, you know, am I falling into a new location that I'm going to have to bring everything with me? Or are there people that are there before me that I'm going to, you know, assume that location? If you can anticipate injuries, you can anticipate illnesses, you can start to put together your supply list and your organization you're going with, whether that's the military or, you know, another nonprofit organization may have supplies with them, but you may want to supplement that just based on what you can anticipate being there. You have to be flexible. And I think you get there and you assess the situation, you feel out kind of what injuries you're seeing, what illnesses you're seeing. And then I joked when I was in Afghanistan that to become very good friends with the carpenter. And so this is just one example, but we had an aid station and it had two beds that were in there. And there was this giant wall that was always in our way and it decreased our patient flow. You would run into it. And I said, this is a, can we please fix this? And so becoming friends with one of our supply sergeants, another very good friend to have is your supply personnel. They said, oh, where's this carpenter on base? And so we just became friends with him and he rebuilt our aid station for us. And not, not the entire thing, but was able to make it a much more functioning space. So that functioning space may be physically moving structures to make them fit your needs, but it also may be just changing how you perform and any standard operating procedures you may have just based on reflection of past events. 
it sounds like there's the austere response where you're coming in and there's already something set up for you, but you have to maybe adjust it to what you need. But then there's the type where you're actually like, for example, wilderness rescue medicine, you're going in blind and you have to bring everything with you. What would you say the big difference is? Is it just you're carrying the stuff physically versus you're going into some place where you already have some supplies? It's a bit nuanced because sometimes you're going into an austere location for the first time and you may be staying, you know, sometimes you may be just going in and out. Like if you're doing a rescue operation in terms of, you mentioned the wilderness medicine. So I think that's part of your planning process too, is in terms of how much equipment you're bringing with you. Austere medicine could be, it could be short-term or it could be long-term, you know, it just, and you could fall into a new location or you could be there for a while. Like military examples would be, I'm deploying for six months to Afghanistan with my unit. And I know the location I'm going to, I'm falling into an aid station. I'm going to, you know, set up shop and then sign out to another physician and unit when they we leave versus the mountain rescue situation that is a very quick in, quick out type thing. There are similarities in that, again, the planning for it and the supplies and the equipment and medications and personnel that you would need but it would be very different, you know, to have a sustained operation for six months where you're supporting a unit on the ground. My needs as the physician are going to be very different than a mountain rescue or a hostage rescue in terms of what types of things and personnel I would need. For austere medicine, and especially it seems like for military austere medicine, safety is a really big concern. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of things do you do to make sure that yourself and your team is safe, maybe even before you're going into the situation? I think that part of it is first making sure that you're not dead weight to the team. I think that was always one of my goals in the military was not to be that person that was a, a liability. And, you know, the, the military kind of says this frequently of, you know, soldier first. And I think that rings true in terms of making sure that you're physically fit making sure that you know how to wear your body armor, how to use your weapon and keep yourself safe, defend yourself. Additionally, just even be able to like carry your own bags. So I, I think that being a competent individual in that organization, you know, for the military, for me, knowing how to be a soldier and not to be a liability is important in terms of safety Seeing safety is something that is true. You try to mitigate that risk as much as you can. And the Department of Defense does the same thing in terms of risk assessments and mitigating risk. There is obviously an inherent risk of being in the military and serving overseas in combat. Having situational awareness helps as well as to what's going on. When I was deployed as the, they call it a battalion surgeon, which is the, the name of the position I had, but I made a point to go to all of the command meetings just to make sure that I knew what was going on from a mission stance and situational awareness of what was happening so that I could best prepare myself and my team members. The other thing I think that's important is with whatever organization you're working with, making sure that you're in communication with the operational team. And so for me, in terms of scene safety and taking care of patients, it depends on who my patients are. And not all of my patients were American soldiers. You're taking care of potentially of enemy combatants. You're taking care of local nationals. And so I think our desire as physicians to help and to kind of get pigeonholed into, I must run and help this person, you need to put a pause in. And similar to how we teach our EMTs, you know, assess as a scene safe. Similarly, I need to work with my operational line team and make sure, is it safe for me to evaluate this patient? Has this patient been cleared? 
to make sure there's no hazards on this individual. Is this local, has this local national been cleared? And again, I think we have this altruistic heart where you just want to go and help people, but you need to remember that this situation is much more complex than this one-on-one physician-patient relationship and to really rely on the experts in that and make sure that they have mitigated as many risks as they can. And I will also add the other thing about safety. It's a balance of wanting to be part of the team and to do what the team is doing, but also not taking unnecessary risk. It is very tempting, especially as you get to know these for me, my soldiers to want to do everything with them. And when they're going on these missions to go on all these missions with them and to quote unquote, do the cool things. One, I'm not cool. But number two, it doesn't make sense to put the physician on a high risk patrol that they're doing because I need to be alive and well to be able to take care of them if something happens. And there were definitely situations and there were missions where the medical threat was high enough and complex enough that they were like, Hey doc, we need you to go. Absolutely. But I shouldn't just be joyriding around Afghanistan or wandering unbeaten trails to do it because I think it's cool to do. So I think that's the thing with safety. And as you're the leader of a team telling your guys and girls the same thing about, hey, you know, that would be really cool to do, but is that the smartest thing to do? And are you value added or do you just want to go because you think it's the next cool thing to do? I love that you mentioned not being dead weight because I remember I did the contoms class for tactical medicine. And while the medicine part was fine, they had a whole bunch of other tactical things that I was expected to know. And I remember just being like, I have, I don't even know how to hold this gun. Like I'm just useless in this team. (laughs) No, but I think that's critical. But I think the thing is, is that it's, it's important to recognize that. And I think you can train ahead of time. You know, I am not a natural shooter by any means. Uh, but I think I need to be able to safely operate a weapon at a minimum to be able to clear somebody's weapon and put it on safe to keep my team safe. Right. And I I think, especially when you're going with these tactical units, whether it's the military or it's SWAT or, you know, some agency, you have to be able to function at a baseline layer to make sure you're not only keeping yourself safe, but the rest of the team safe. So you had mentioned that you spent some time in coast Afghanistan and you were doing disaster planning work with the army. What was that experience like? Yeah, that was honestly a highlight of my career. I had the opportunity very shortly after residency to deploy to Afghanistan. And I actually trained with a unit for almost a year. Went to California to do training with them, got to know them, spent a lot of time with them, and then got to Texas before we deployed and was told, my my maiden name is Cookman. Like, Cookman, just kidding. You're not going here. You're actually going to go to coast. And they had done a pre-deployment site survey. So the commanders went out there and assessed the situation and realized that there was this tiny little base that was about a seven minute flight from Pakistan that they were worried about high risk situation for having not only casualties, but casualties that we couldn't evacuate. And so they wanted to put a physician farther forward and they looked at a list and saw that I was emergency medicine. And that was my kind of striking task in the beginning. And so I trained with this whole team for a year and then surprised, got to deploy with an entirely new unit whom I met most of them in Afghanistan. And so I spent six months on the Eastern Afghanistan on the Pakistan border with about a hundred infantry and field artillery, primarily men. They had just recently integrated women into the quote unquote front lines. And so there was only six females, myself and one other female officer and four enlisted soldiers 
And that was me. I was what's called a battalion surgeon, which is not a surgeon in the OR. It is a essentially a team doctor. And I was responsible for taking care of my soldiers. And that was everything from sick call and sprained ankles and back pain and normal, I would say, muscular skeletal complaints primarily, but then also disaster planning. And what are we going to do in this tiny base if we get hit? And how am I going to hold these patients when I'm not technically supposed to be holding patients in this capability that I have? What do you do and how do you evacuate them? Where do they go? And planning for that and practicing doing disaster drills. And so it was a wonderful experience to get out of the hospital and into a far forward location and pushed me and had some of my biggest challenges medically, ethically that I've had in my career to date. What is training like for this kind of situation? What do you even do to prepare yourself? And how would you teach someone else to prepare for an austere disaster experience like this? So I think the first thing is try to do it ahead of time before you're in it, ideally. You know, I think with doing education in disaster medicine and specifically in austere medicine, I think there's a couple of highlights that I, I've come to the conclusion of. And I think one of those is doing high fidelity simulation. So as much hands-on actual practice than notional. For example, when I was teaching my military medical students in my previous position, one of the things we taught them how to do was a walking blood bank and, and whole blood transfusions. And whereas a lot of times you can, you know, throw a poker chip and say, I just transfuse someone blood. And next thing you know, you treat this polytrauma patient in about 15 seconds. I would hand the students the equipment and had a bag of red saline that I labeled blood and said like, all right, like show me how you're going to do this. Hook up the equipment. How are you physically going to do this? I draw on a lot of my experiences. And one example I'll give is in Afghanistan, I went to give someone antibiotics. I was like, oh, you have an infection. We need to give you this antibiotic. And the medic handed me this vial and it had powdered antibiotics in it. And I looked at him and I said, I have no idea how to, I'm like, I know you need this antibiotic, but I have no idea as a board eligible emergency physician, how to get this in your body. And so I've taught my students, you know, there are companies where you can actually get these antibiotics that require reconstitution and to use that, to figure out your equipment, how to do it hands-on as much as you can. So the high fidelity simulation, I think is important when you're doing education and training, doing an interagency collaborative effort is absolutely critical. And so not just doing the physicians in your department, but involving your nurses and your techs not even just using your department, use the entire hospital, getting the other departments involved. And for me in the military, it was very critical when we were doing these mass cal drills, whether you're doing them stateside or in an austere deployed location to get the command involved. So get the infantry people involved, get the chaplain involved, get the cooks involved. Because in our planning, we say, you know, for example, ours was that our individuals that were serving as cooks in the kitchen would come and help with patient transport well, they need to know that and they need to have, know how to operate stretchers. They need to know what our aid station looks like. And so the more you can get people's hands dirty and the more departments and people and sections of people you can involve in that and then actually walking through and doing it versus just sitting around a table and you know throwing papers and poker chips at each other is absolutely critical when you're doing disaster and specifically austere medicine education and training. Based on that, what did you find were the biggest challenges to implementing the disaster planning and response during your experience? One of the biggest challenges is time and making it a priority for the medical piece. And, and I say that because 
again, using my experience in the military, but you could, you could extrapolate this to different organizations. They all have things they need to train on, right? You need to train your infantrymen on their rifles. You need to train people on their weapons system, their computers, whatever they're doing. They're all busy, right? Making medicine a priority. I have found oftentimes they say, oh, well, medicine's got it and they can do this. And it's, it's, being willing to stand up in a meeting where you may not know a lot of people, they may outrank you in some form or another and saying it is absolutely critical to our mission that we do a half day mask house scenario that's going to be very time and resource intensive. So I think the time piece is very challenging, number one. And I think the other thing that's very challenging is just, I mentioned the high fidelity simulation and hands-on and, and it's hard to get your hands on that much medical equipment, right? To run through a polytrauma patient, that's a lot of things and supplies that you're using. So, you know, some of those supplies can be reused, but I think it's also just a matter of forming relationships with hospitals that are nearby and saying, Hey, when you have expired medications or drugs, can I please have them? So you can try to cut some costs there as well. How often would you do these types of simulations? Was it like a once a year thing or once every time your position changed or more frequently? I think it depends on where you are. We've talked about Afghanistan a fair amount, but that was definitely a very high frequency that we were doing them. At least once a week, my medical team was doing a mass cow drill, and then we were doing a base-wide mass cow drill once a month. And so that was a pretty high, high tempo that we were doing that. In terms of hospitals I've been at, I've been at hospitals where you do it once a year, I think is probably what I've seen most frequently. And then with the military medical school, that was a little bit different because they they're, were so focused there on getting them ready for making sure they can serve not only as excellent physicians, but also as military medical officers. That was a much more frequent and regular part of their curriculum, which I think was very unique to that university. That's so interesting because I feel like you're supposed to in a hospital do one of these like mass cal drills at least once a year. But I don't know if I've ever heard at any of the places that I've been at of one happening. Have you ever experienced that in the hospital? Let me think. My previous jobs in the military, we've done at least one a year that I've been part of. And that was a mandatory event where we were all there. So I guess that may be a difference with the military is they can just mandate that you come to these things as well. But I happily showed up for our mass cows. How do you prioritize resources then? Like you have to make these critical decisions about different patients. You have very limited resources. How do you figure out who gets what? And um, does crisis standards of care play into this at all? Or is it just do the best you can for every patient? That brings up such a great point. And it's one thing I, I frequently teach our students about. I taught a course for the past four years that was a prolonged casualty care course of holding these patients that you couldn't evacuate. And one of the additions we made to the curriculum was adding an expectant patient that would require tons and tons and tons of blood that no matter what the students did, the patient was going to die. But I think that's an important realization to have is that no matter how much we do and how great we do, there are patients that are going to die. And I think realizing that and being able to have those feelings and those difficult conversations before you get into them is absolutely critical to a physician's growth. I think in terms of resources, I think you have to know what you have to begin with. You also need to know what resources are around you and what resources you can get resupplied. And so the triage process still applies, you know, in terms of your most critical patients. We were talking about, you know, would we ever do a thoracotomy on our base? And, I, and the answer is no, because the closest surgeon for me is at least an hour away. And so, you know, that patient's not going to survive the transport and, and it would be a kind of unfortunately a, a futile effort to answer your question. You triage the patients in terms of acuity and you treat them 
but I think as you're doing that, you need to start thinking as you start getting down your algorithms and your kind of reassessments, okay, what does this person have? What's their most likely outcome? What resources do I have versus do I give 10 units to one patient or do I give two units each to five patients? And I think these are ethical dilemmas that you get into. And again, I think the key is being able to teach your learners these situations and make them think through these things before they ideally get into that situation. And then finally, crisis standards of care. You know, I I like to think that everything I did downrange is the same thing that I would do stateside. I do think there are nuances and there are things that you have to kind of take into account that are very different than practicing medicine in the United States. It'll be interesting to see with crisis standards of care that's come up a lot on a lot of the working groups that I've been in in the Department of Defense, especially as we start talking about future wars where we're dealing with hundreds of thousands, millions of casualties versus the you know casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan we've had over the past 20 years. From a place like Coast, if you were to have multiple patients that you needed to stabilize, what is evacuation for those patients like? So it really depends. You know, I think we were very fortunate that we had a medevac unit with us. So we had two Blackhawk helicopters that were co-located in our location and on standby for the region. And so that was a great partnership that we had with them. Obviously, they're not always at our base. They may be off doing another mission. And the other big thing to consider with helicopters, which was the primary form of evacuation in Afghanistan when I was there, is that it is dependent on multiple things. One is your crew to the weather, right? So we were high in the mountains and had some terrible storms where you wouldn't be able to fly for days. And then number three is enemy activity. And so there was a ridge line between us and the surgeons that frequently the air would go black or non-fly. You couldn't fly there because there was too much enemy activity and too high of risk for the pilots flying over. So our primary evacuation was air and then secondary would be ground, but those many of those roads haven't been cleared and you're talking about a very high risk situation to move patients. It just depended on the day and the circumstances. Is the basic flow of the patient essentially like you stabilize them as much as you can wherever they are and then they would go to the surgeon that was nearby if needed and then from there they would then come back to the U.S. if they needed more care? How does that work? Yeah, so the military has these defined roles of care, one through five, and so there's the point of injury where the patient gets injured, and then there's the role one, which is actually where I was, and that's your your aid station. That's kind of your initial point of stabilization. It's either staffed by a physician or a physician assistant, and then the role two is a little bit bigger of a hospital, more like a tent-ish thing, but the neat thing about role twos is you get your laboratory, your radiology capabilities are there. You often can have a surgical team. So the military will pre-station surgical teams at forward locations. And so they had, they could do their damage control surgery and damage control resuscitation there. Then you had your role three, which is your Baghdad ER, your combat support hospital. It's kind of what you think about when you see these, you know, ERs in Iraq or Afghanistan on TV. The role four is in Germany. And then your role five is a hospital like Walter Reed or Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. And so the doctrine way would be the patient goes from point of injury all the way through those roles of care. The reality of the situation in Iraq and Afghanistan, because we had such excellent what we call it air superiority and that we could fly pretty much anywhere in the country. We got to a point where we could fly a patient within an hour. That's kind of this golden hour theme of 
from their point of injury and they're on an operating room table within an hour. And so sometimes that meant our helicopters were flying directly from where the patient was injured straight to a role three or a role two where that surgeon is and can operate on them and they would quote unquote overfly the role one. It really just depended on what was going on in the area, where the surgical teams were, but it was absolutely critical in my position to know where my assets were. So that if I had a sick patient, where I could send them. And I think sometimes you have to think outside the box too. I just walked this doctor in military of role one, two, three, four, five. Well, there are other people in Afghanistan as well that were with me that could potentially treat a U.S. soldier. And so I think it's challenging some of those standards at times. And, and you know, sometimes you get into this, well, this is how we've always done it. And it's like, yes, I know that's what the book says we can do. But I think as emergency physicians, especially, we are particularly good at thinking outside of the box. There are times when, to go back to your evacuation point, things don't make sense. And it is worthwhile to think outside the box and think, where else can my patient go if they get injured, uh, if I need someone to treat them? For future conflicts, do you foresee that air superiority is going to be an issue or will we pretty much always have that? Oh, 100% air superiority is going to be an issue when we go into future conflicts. I think that we have been very spoiled in the past 20 years in the sense that we have been able to get a patient from their injury to a surgeon within an hour. It has resulted in incredible survivability and it's it's been absolutely amazing. You know, we've been able to save people's lives that would not have a chance in, in previous conflicts. I think future conflicts, there's going to be several issues. And one of those is going to be air superiority. We're not going to be able to fly patients willy-nilly around a country. We're going to be potentially operating in a place where we may not be able to fly at all. Additionally, the other unique thing about the past 20 years of conflict in the military is that these are relatively small geographical areas. And so when you overlay a map of the United States and put it on Africa, you quickly realize how large that continent is. And the evacuation times from Africa are on the means of you know three to seven days to get somebody off that continent. And so I think the issues of geography and I think the issues of air superiority or the lack thereof are going to be absolutely critical in future conflicts the DOD is going to face. So then do you think our mortality rates are going to go up based on that? Yes, I think our mortality rates will go up. And also the other big concern in future conflicts is just going to be the types of weapons and systems that we're facing. What kinds of changes do you think we'll see from that front? I think that we'll just see more casualties. The Department of Defense is going to have to shift how some of their medical practices are. And, and, and they're very aware of that and they're planning for it. And they are doing some absolutely incredible work with it. There are going to be more casualties. I think that the evacuation times are going to be longer. There's going to be a higher reliance on U.S. civilian hospitals to help with taking those casualties as well, because I believe that those casualties are going to be quickly overwhelmed they will overwhelm the Department of Defense medical system. And so, you know, how is this country going to come together to support these casualties also? Do you think that less conventional warfare is going to change austere medicine and military medicine a lot, like maybe biowarfare? The foundation is there. I think the foundation is very strong. And I think you're going to have to modify some of that. And that may be equipment that you're using that there's been a, a big push recently, and I've done some work on this, just innovation and thinking about what equipment we have. Could we 3D print some of this stuff because we're not going to be able to resupply people? That's one thing. Having small, portable things is another thing. And, and then I think also trying to think about, you know, we're used to having these massive physician teams and surgeons and doctors everywhere, but also how do you push care further forward? 
and, and utilize your military medics and your PAs and was that telemedicine that you're using? Is it more training? So I, I think that there will be a lot of adaptations that will be required. But you know, my experience in the Department of Defense and in the Army has been it's been great. I think that they're very quick to respond to those things, and we hope that they don't have to adapt to it. But they're already planning for it. You mentioned 3D printers and innovation. Are there any like changes in technology that you feel have really revolutionized? Osteomedicine medicine or combat medicine in the time that you've been doing it? Yeah, absolutely. I think telemedicine has been absolutely a great asset. And I say telemedicine, and they have these very big, complicated telemedicine boxes where you can have like a portable otoscope and then, you know, an EKG and you can hook it up and like transmit it. I, I think telemedicine, my experience that's been most beneficial is a, a secured app that you can even just message somebody on. But I think telemedicine is revolutionizing medicine. And I think especially in austere locations as well. And again, it's just getting that higher level of expertise further forward. That is one piece. I think the second piece of technology that has revolutionized medicine and has potential to even grow more is the use of portable ultrasounds. And, you know, for example, I didn't have any x-ray capabilities where I was, but we could ultrasound someone and you can do a lot with ultrasound. You potentially can save someone an evacuation or a transfer if you can ultrasound them. And so I think the more that these ultrasounds are becoming more portable and higher resolution it is better. And again, if you combine that with telemedicine, you can now train someone how to use it and potentially get those images back to somebody else if they're unsure of what they're seeing. Based on that, just playing off what you said, how do you see the practice of austere medicine changing in the near future? I, I think it's going to be smarter. And I think that it's a matter of really honing down what equipment you need and making it more portable. And then also, how do you potentially mass produce that or reproduce it where you are? As far as demobilization goes, how do you decide when you're done? Do you just pack up and go? Or do you, is there like a slow? Yeah, that's a great. How do like, we know? I, I know I'm done when someone tells me I'm leaving. Um, that's been my experience. But it's funny you bring that up. So actually, when I was in Afghanistan, we were leaving the, like the first time. We didn't leave, but we were going to leave. And we had been briefing the entire time I was there that we could be out of here in 10 days. And my entire base was 0.4 miles around. It was not very large at all. But after that many years in combat, you've acquired a lot of stuff. And so I used to hear this and I uh, kind of just thought, huh, like, we'll see how this goes. And then at the very end of my deployment, we were told that we were closing our base and we had 10 days to close the base. And it was a logistical opportunity for growth for everybody. And, but the thing, we got it done. It was just, it felt like chaos, maybe controlled chaos is a better term. So yeah, we just had to work with our logistics and supply chains to get things shut down and shipped back or to figure out where we're going to put this equipment because you can't leave everything there. And so to answer your questions, I go home when they tell me to go home. And then you just have to work with your supply chains and your, log your logisticians and to, to make it happen. I think for us, from a medical team standpoint, again, kind of going back to not being dead weight was we internally had plans for how are we going to collapse some of this stuff and what are we going to do with it and where is it going to go uh, ahead of time? So at least we could pack up our stuff into our connexes, which are these giant containers to make sure it would all fit. What else should we know about austere medicine and disaster planning and then military medicine? 
I think in terms of austere medicine, I would encourage everyone to really push themselves and get out of their comfort zone and get out of their boundaries. You know, I initially was going to be deploying to uh, what's the role two I mentioned where they have like the surgical team with you. And given the opportunity to go to the role one was one of the best things that's happened to me in my career. And I think because of that, you get the opportunity to work in an austere location where people are really just focused on the mission and getting the right thing done. There was a lot less bureaucracy and red tape, and it was a great opportunity for me to work with my patients and really understand what they're doing. Also, being in austere medicine, especially as an emergency physician, is going to push you out of your comfort zone, push what you think your knowledge level and skill level is in such a great way that still impacts how I practice emergency medicine today. So, you know, we can all practice in these big hospitals where you can call every consultant and you have these magicians called nurses that will transfuse blood and hook up your Pluravax and kind of just make the magic happen. But I think being able to practice medicine in an austere location, not only can you do good for a lot of people potentially, but you can really learn medicine, understand medicine and learn to trust yourself, you know, and and trust your diagnoses. And I just think that's a great experience. In terms of military medicine, I think things to know about military medicine, I think it is an excellent way to serve your country and to really take care of something bigger than yourself. You know, I had 13 years in the army as active duty and have nothing but positive things to to say. Anyone listening that has any interest in it at all, obviously I'm happy to talk to you more about it, but I, but I think if you're even thinking about it, I would definitely look hard and consider that as a, as a career. And it doesn't have to be a 20-year career. It can be a four-year career. And I think you'll gain excellent, not just emergency medicine, but also leadership experience. What advice would you give to someone who's interested in maybe being involved in military medicine or other types of austere medicine environments? Yeah, I think you talk to people. I think talking to people that are doing it is important. And so, and in, in talking to more than one person, so you don't get like the one curmudgeon or the one like cheerleader that thinks everything is wonderful. My friends always make fun of me because they say that I loved med school and like not everyone loved med school like I did. So, but to answer your question, if someone is interested in military medicine, I would say, or austere medicine, I would talk to people that are doing it and then I've done it recently. So, and talk to multiple people to get multiple opinions. I remember when I was in college and I was trying to decide if I was going to do the scholarship for medical school, driving up to Walter Reed on a Sunday and not surprisingly, the only department that was open that had people there was the emergency department and grabbed coffee with an emergency physician there to ask them like, how is your life? Do you have a family? Like all of those questions you're afraid of and like things you're worried about, just ask those questions. And then trust yourself and be willing to take a risk and say, I'm going to try this and I'm going to go do this thing that I really want to do, but maybe scared to do. And obviously they can reach out to you to get to me if they want to talk more about military medicine and happily talk to them about it. Any last words of wisdom? I think one thing I would, I do want to add and when it comes to austere medicine or just even organizational medicine, I think sometimes we just get so bogged down in the the minutia of the day and, you know, emergency medicine of like boarding patients and like whatever stresses we're having. Um, I think it's important to remember that you're part of a team and as a physician or the leader of that healthcare team, and that is a very wonderful place to be. And you can have a lot of impact on people. And I, I think for me, you know, I have come to appreciate over my career so much those that I work with, whether it's the nurses, the medics, which in the civilian world are your technicians. 
and just realizing their true potential. And, and your team is really only limited in scope by what they know. And you as the physician have the ability to expand that scope. Civilian stateside is a little bit more complicated in terms of what people are licensed to do and not licensed to do. But I'll, I'll use an example. In Afghanistan, it was myself as a physician. I had a physician assistant with me as well. And then I had six military medics. Until I deployed to Afghanistan, I saw military medics as people that started IVs and did blood pressures and took people to radiology. And that was really it. And very quickly, I realized when I was downrange that if I had more than one critical patient, I could not be in both places at once. I mean, obviously, right? And so my medics are trained in tactical combat casualty care and how to do essentially ATLS in the field, right? And so working with them and teaching them, this is how you you know do needle decompressions. This is how you do chest tubes. This is how you do intubations and realizing that I could just give them that knowledge. And, and also it's inspiring, you know, and I think that, and they rose the occasion. They were absolutely amazing. They are absolutely amazing. And I think that's still a passion of mine is even just, you know, teaching your medics and nurses and techs on shift about why you're worried about this patient or how to do this procedure, I think can go a really long way. Awesome. And then last question, could you please share a memorable story from your career for us? Oh, yes. I knew this question was coming. A memorable story. I have a funny story. I had a guy I was taking care of in sick call one time and in Afghanistan, um, something I didn't realize before I got there was that as a physician, you also take care of the military working dogs. And I love dogs. And that was like my therapy, you know, while I was there to keep me happy was these dogs. And so I had convinced the, the dog handlers that normally like, you know, don't pet the dog I'm working that in order for the dog to be comfortable with me in case I have to take care of it when he gets sick and he needs to like hang out with me and hang out in our aid station. So I was always with a dog when I was on, on my base. And I had a, a very junior enlisted soldier that was in for ear pain. And I'll never forget this. He was mortified. He was turning bright red. And I was like, what's going on? Like, what, what's wrong with you? Right. And he looks at me, he goes, ma'am, I thought you were a veterinarian. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, no. I said, oh, I am the veterinarian, but I can take care of E5 and below, which essentially was telling him I could take care of like the junior enlisted people, just not like the officers. And I was like, I'm just kidding. I'm the doctor. Like I'm, I'm here for you to take care of you. Um, so I guess that was like a funny story, but honestly, and, and you probably maybe need to cut this out, but, um, in a unit that had just recently gotten women on the base, I figured being a veterinarian was not the worst rumor that could be going around about me. My most powerful memory of my 13 years in the army was I was, I mentioned that I had met my unit in Afghanistan. And so no one knew who I was. It took, and I spent a lot of time trying to get to know them. I would literally just like hang out with them at their shift at like the entry control point, just to get to know what they're doing and what their job is. So I could serve them better as a physician. And also to get to know them. I did my infantry week where I like hung out with them for a week and did their things. And that was wonderful. And I think the kind of capstone of, of capturing that relationship was when we had a group of soldiers that were going on a mission and they were walking off the base and, and one of them turned back and looked at me and he goes, doc, I can go on this mission because I know if something happens to me, you're going to get me home to my family. And that was just such a powerful moment that I've told this story multiple times and still tear up as I say that, um, just realizing that the impact that you as a physician can have on someone else's life. 
Music track courtesy of Pixabay and composed by Alex Zavesa. I'm your host, Larissa Unruh, and I'll see you next time on The Disaster Project. Want more learning? Check out the content at Urgent Matters for e-newsletters, webinars, tools, conferences, and podcasts to enhance your practice, whatever your practice might be. Go to urgentmatters.smhs.gwu.edu. Have an idea for a topic to discuss or know someone that you think would be great to interview on The Disaster Project? Send us a message about it. Email thedisasterprojectpodcast at gmail.com to let us know your thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. Can't wait to read them.